Hey folks, this is How to Grow a Whole Family, and this is the left hemisphere of Seth's brain speaking to you. I'm only half of Seth, which I explained more in the first episode from season one. The other half can't talk, but I live with him all day long, and I'm a little domineering. I do all the talking, and since Seth is right-handed and I control the right half of his body, I control just about everything he controls. So I get to click the mouse on my computer, get to do the majority of all the daily tasks. I insist on being the one that throws the football every time. So it's kind of like if we two hemispheres in Seth's head were a married couple, I'm like the domineering husband who hasn't let his wife speak or write for so long that she literally doesn't even know how. So she's relegated to typing Q's and W's on the left half of the keyboard and holding our phone up to my ear while I do the talking or holding the curtains out of the way while I clean the window. Free fun fact, some scientists think this may have developed largely because my mom was right-handed, so about the time that she's that I'm getting vocal tones figured out and start thinking, hmm, I wonder what these words mean coming out of people's mouths. Mom intuitively is holding me up from behind and placing her head over my right shoulder and speaking more often to my right ear about the time my left hemisphere took off and figured it out first and best and said to right hemisphere, no, I've got it from here. You work on the stuff you're good at. Just help and play along. And so mom was right-handed and she played with me from behind and subconsciously played with my right hand more to do more skilled things. And I took off with fine motor skills too. So right hemisphere never really had a chance and we formed a peaceful hierarchy inside of Seth's head. You sit there and be quiet, righty, and do the supporting cast and I'll be the star of the show. Now, this sounds depressing, but strangely enough, it works, which I get is easy for me, the left hemisphere, to say, but research shows that infants who formed hand preferences strong and early where right hemisphere submitted to the authority of the left, worked on developing and honing its own skills, are the same people that went on to master speech the best and subsequently cognitive development in general. People whose brain hemisphere hierarchy forms strong and fast have higher cognitive abilities, and get this, while it may seem all non-egalitarian and depressing and all, these are the people who went on to be more mentally stable and it is ambidextrous people who have shown to be slower learners overall and have higher percentage rates for mental health issues perhaps because there's a power squabble going on inside instead of learned cooperation we don't know but it's all happening in our head between the two of us this is an episode about motives, and I, Left Hemisphere, would like to speak to you, listening Left Hemisphere, about how to be a good spouse to your other hemisphere as you coexist with the other in a hierarchy and other people around you and their other thems. You are in charge of the verbal banter that goes back and forth. You are in charge of deciding whether or not to charge someone with something or to drop the charge. You are the one who speaks words of life or words of injury to yourself and others. You and I, left hemispheres, are the one who develop and explain narratives for people's motives. And it's one of our specializations, and we had better do it wisely. So I want to tell you seven things about motives today. Motives are one of the most misunderstood, maligned, and misused subjects in our culture. Our understanding of motives is behind every fight, every divorce, just about every squabble at work, on the playground, and on the news. So if you show me a couple or a partnership who is in deep or painful territory, divorce territory possibly, I'll show you a couple who has misunderstood each other's motives. So here's the culture's narrative, that we humans do stuff, you know, like, 
we walk around and do stuff all day and we have a reason for doing stuff and when something goes wrong we need to pinpoint the reason and fix it kill Osama bin Laden put the bad guy in prison shine the light on the evil in someone's heart expose their lies and intentions call them out and eradicate the source of the pain so whenever your wife said that thing about you she you knew what she was intending and she can pretend all she wants but I know the truth of her motives right you think that what is every trial in court about we are a left-brain culture, and we try people on motives. Let's say a guy runs over a child, and there's a tragedy that happens, and the child is killed, playing on the side of the street. What do we do with that? We investigate in court. What was he trying to do and that makes all the difference in the world because if we could somehow prove that he meant to do this that he steered the car in that direction intentionally and ran the child over it's like life in prison right this is what every dateline is about well, what if the guy were texting while driving would we send him to the execution chair would we send him to life in prison well no he'd probably get jail time maybe involuntary manslaughter but he wouldn't do life in prison Maybe it was a freak accident, though. And despite all of the best safeguards and 10 and 2 on the wheel and he had new tires, there was a freak blowout at the exact wrong time and it caused the accident despite all of his best intentions. He would most likely walk free. Why? Because, oh, we get this narrative and we clear him in our mind of any bad motives. We say, oh, we get it. We understand him. We have a logical explanation for how a good guy could have accidentally created this loss. It makes logical sense to us. And if we can make logical sense out of tragedy and loss and still allow somebody the room to be good in that, we can let other people off the hook or forgive them for some really horrendous things. And you know that I'm headed to relationships with this, right? So I want to tell you seven things about motives today. Number one, when we get mad, we get mad not because of what people did, but because of their perceived motives behind the action. So you don't get mad at a guy who could not have prevented a loss or tragedy. Humans in that circle, even in the face of a great loss, will automatically and willfully bond together in spirit and say, you know, tragedy happens Let's pull ourselves up and let's be there for each other and bless each other. Now, this, though, goes on under the surface, not just in large-scale tragedies, but literally every time you get upset. So take it to work. What about when that coworker doesn't have the report turned in that was due yesterday? You're actually mad not because the coworker didn't turn it in and you need it. You're mad because you have a narrative subconsciously already in your brain and you have ascribed a background, whether you realize it or not, for what was going on. And this is personal. Now, you may say, well, no, 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 I'm mad because I need a report and I don't have it. I don't really care what the other person's excuse was, right? But what about when you find out your coworker's mom just died and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer and a tornado destroyed her house all in the last two days? Do you think you might would let her off the hook, right? You and everybody else at your work, if you're human and you need the report, all of a sudden will say, oh, well, 
all of that happened. I guess we'll live without the report or something. Maybe one of us will suck it up and work late and help out. But all of a sudden, that conflict or interpersonal anger vanishes in explanation. We get them. So this is about motives, and it's always been about motives. When we don't know someone's narrative, we fill in the gaps with something similar to what we think it should be. And you left hemisphere, let's face it, you need an explanation, don't you? This is what you do all day long. You look for explanations. You are the logic half of the brain and you take reality and put it into story even if the story may not be completely true because you want a cohesive narrative. It's where you get security from. This is partly where language even develops and comes from. Left hemisphere confabulates an explanation for the reality of the things that happen around it and if you left hemisphere satisfied and it makes sense to you, then you can be at peace with them. But here's the problem. You often take shortcuts and this is a complicated world. So like some of you already may have been going here with this. Like, well, Seth, what about when that chronically lazy coworker continues to not turn in the report? Or when your spouse hasn't washed the dishes in 10 years and that's just how they are because they keep doing it. That's how they've always been. And I know them really well. I live with them. I know their motives better than they know their own motives. I can predict what they're going to do before they even do it. You probably can. You, you might be able to see how their parents treated them growing up and you're just like, I know what caused this and they're just lazy. They're just insecure. His dad was like that. It got passed down. They're just demeaning. They're just that way. So here all of the shortcuts. So you're taking a shortcuts. The same things keep happening and you are lacking the ability to control it and you've got no full explanation for it and you can't fix it so you take a shortcut. They're just that way. Bam, a label. And so let's just punish it or expose it and get it out of the way so I can go on with my life and my pursuit of power. I know what's wrong with them. You know what? We call that pride. Because number two, the second thing I want to tell you is that motives aren't simple and you can't explain someone's actions simply but that doesn't mean that they don't have a cause or a background see there was never one motive behind the killing there, there was never one motive behind your husband not washing the dishes this was a perfect storm of conditions that culminates in one action or in one day or in one habit see our actions and our habits are like the weather. You can often see patterns. You can often predict in advance. It can often be very predictable, but you can't ever know exactly what's going to happen at any acute moment in time or exactly what is causing what in any specific situation or all of the variables behind the large-scale patterns. That's because at any one point in time, there are like a thousand different things going on that cause you to do what you do and say what you say. So if we ask you what were your motives behind that, say somebody says something that upsets you and you react, do you know what's in that moment? No, you, you don't even have the first clue. We don't even 
possibly have the brain power to understand all of the variables. In that one moment, whenever you react to your spouse, everything from how much sleep you had last night to your blood sugar level to that time when you were two and your dad did that thing that scared you, keep going all the way down to the subluxations in your spine causing nervous distress or your body temperature working to keep homeostasis at 98.6. Combine all of those things and so many more with what that person said the last time and that one time six years ago when they really hit you in the gut with that comment and combine that with the time your brother said the same thing, your own experience of the last time and combine those with all of the memories of the other times this happened, put them in your subconscious emotional memory, combine that with your personality type and how they heard or misheard comments in the first place to the pressure of being a woman in your situation to whatever other cultural issues you're dealing with and all of that culminates in one comment that you make can the person who's listening to you possibly know everything about what would cause you to say that like take another really basic scenario Say you kiss your wife goodbye before you leave to go to work. Now, that's not a conflict. You just just something that you do. But why? Why do you do that? What's your motives? Partly habit, partly because you love her, and partly because you want to feel loved from her. Partly because you're afraid of what might happen if you didn't, like she might get upset. Partly because you think, well, I never want to miss a chance to kiss her goodbye because my aunt died and my uncle lamented not kissing her goodbye in the morning. And so he always said, don't ever miss a chance. And and then in the back of your mind, maybe you're planning a date night on Friday. Maybe you'd like to get a little action. And, and then maybe you'd like your kids to see like a strong marriage. And maybe it just feels so good to be wanted and loved. Now, How would you react if I came along after you kissed your wife goodbye and cherry-picked only the bad motives out of there and only the selfish ones and accused you of only those? Oh, I see why you did that. You just wanted some action on Friday night and you're afraid she'll be mad at you. What would you do? I have a strong feeling you would react and say, no, no, I have all these good reasons. And and the truth is, you just have a bunch of reasons, both good and bad, culminating to create whatever specific weather or action happens at the time. So I can create a narrative around that, but it's always going to be incomplete. So when you and I are observing the other people around us, there tends to be some things that we can explain, and it's just enough to keep our pridefulness alive. Like there's definite climate patterns, and we can be like, oh, look, it's El Nino. It's going to be a wet winter. Oh, look, it's football season. My husband's going to be in front of the TV a lot. But weather people have to be very humble, and they can never predict too far out in advance because even with all the best technology, they know they can't know all of the variables and we can't know all the variables that cause a person to act like they do. Some of us may think we're so awesome and like we just know everything about the people around us, but that is pride because that brings me to number three. You don't even understand your own motives, let alone anyone else's. You understand about the top 2% of the surface level of your own motives. Totally made that statistic up. But you're skimming the top. I don't care if you've been to your therapist a hundred times and you know all this stuff about how your early childhood impacted this or that. You had best have some humility because even your own life is far too complex. And we'll say things like, well, nobody gets me. Nobody else understands me. You know who doesn't get you? You don't get you. Because on top of the complex 
complexity of all the factors I just mentioned that are going on with other people, they're going on with you, and they're driving your motives. You are the least objective human on the planet Earth when it comes to the topic of you. Literally out of 7.5 billion of us, you are the single most biased one toward the topic of you and most likely to skew objective information. So let me ask you this. Let me dig a little bit. How do you even know why you do the things you do or why you like the things you do or how much you feel a certain way? Do you really even know those things? It's too complex to even figure out if you're totally honest. Like, uh, this happens around us all the time. We say that we felt a certain way really strongly. And it's like, well, how strongly is really strongly? I mean, like, is there a way to quantify the strength of your feelings. And so, like, I've got a neighbor who's a Chevy freak. Die hard Chevy till I die. Why? Like, if that's me, how do I even know that I like Chevys? And how much do I like Chevys compared to Bob, who says he only kind of likes Chevys? And I say, well, I really like Chevys. And what does that even mean? Like, maybe somebody else likes a Chevy more than me, and they're just not so dramatic about it. It's just like a somewhat arbitrary judgment that we come up with when we get these impulses or feelings and we've got, we've got to say something about it or to label it or put a narrative on it to explain it. And it, often we, we get it in a situation where it's going to work for us to give us maybe power or leverage in a relationship or some sort of like impression that we would like to make on somebody. So even if I said like, what's your favorite color? Hmm, blue? Why? I'm like, do you really know what your favorite color is? And why is it your favorite color? I like playing the piano. Okay, well, maybe, but how much do you love it? Like, how do you know how much you love it? And then we bring it to things like this. That comment hurt my feelings. Okay, well, how much did it hurt your feelings? You don't know. You think. You confabulate. You felt something and you create a narrative around it with you, left hemisphere. So one day, somebody may have told you you were awesome on the piano and it made you feel really good about something and you played something and you wanted to do more of it and you were like, oh, this this makes me feel good. And you did it two or three times and you had good experiences and your brain codifies it and label it. I love piano. I'm a piano player. And really, you are just creating a narrative around some reality that happened. And here's the hard part is all of us are varying labels of manipulative in playing these cards to our advantage to gain power in a relationship or situation or to gain influence or to gain some sort of notoriety. We can pretend like we really like to do things or we can pretend like comments really hurt or we can pretend like we're really sad and how do you even know? We can never know how much somebody's really hurt because they will never know and there is no quantifying scale for the intensity of our feelings and desires. Now this can wreak havoc in all kinds of relationships. Maybe for years now, something you have been saying to your wife has really pressed on her hard in a way that you have no idea because she hasn't expressed it. Maybe you have something that's been bothering you and you think everybody else should be like, well, duh, of course that would bother somebody and they're doing it anyway and you can't understand it but you know what 
you may assume to the rest of the world that it should be totes obvi, right? Well, it's not totes obvi because they haven't had the same experiences you have. So they don't have the motives that you have. So we all walk around assuming and confabulating with the best we can, some sort of narrative to make the world make sense. And that's number four. We explain all motives all the time, subconsciously and consciously, with this thing called confabulation. I've said that word a few times. That does not necessarily mean lying. It's the process that you, Left Hemisphere, go through to make sense of the world. It's when you tell the narrative to explain the situation you're in. You are a logician. This is one of your specialties, and one of your jobs is to take whatever input you get and create a logical story out of it because stories are so deeply ingrained within our DNA and that story will bring you in your right feeling hemisphere some sort of security. This is what we do all the time. Ever hear a loud noise outside and you don't know what it is? You can't have peace until you know where it came from. Ah, now I have a story for that. Ever hear of a family who is like searching for a killer? They're looking for peace. They think that they find him and they say, we just need closure. The peace of knowing the threat is behind bars. The, the peace of knowing that this story ends in some sort of justice or some sort of homeostasis. So on a deep level or a shallow level, you left hemisphere getting through thousands of pieces of data all at one time, and it's your job to make sense of it. And you're pretty good, might I add. So all day, Every day, Lefty, you're confabulating logical understanding of the world, and unfortunately, we do it, though, with motives, and we infer motives even whenever it's not our territory or when we're in way over our ability level. Because, you know, like, inferring motives can be really good for things like reading basic facial expressions and vocal tone interpretations, even better for detecting sarcasm, spotting sp suspicious behavior in a bus stop or whatever. But it is very bad for things like complex arguments, political positions, personality traits, long-held religious or belief systems. See, our brains are outfitted for like a basic level of competence in social interaction. They are not outfitted to 100% fidelity to psychoanalyze every human's daily motives and decisions. Because when you throw in that many variables, our little logical left hemisphere can't handle it. So when someone's actions weren't what we thought they should be, we'll often say things like, I don't even get why they would do that. But you'll go ahead and fill in the blanks, won't you? This is where all anger and discord comes from. When my kids is like, let the dogs chew on my sock, you know, I'm like, what? What are you doing? When my employee spends like $300 on that tool that I didn't really need, you know, and you're like, what? what? Come on. Like, why? And when my brother-in-law didn't come to Thanksgiving and played golf with the buddies and you're like, what are you thinking? We don't understand it. And we confabulate an explanation. And if you don't find one, you will make one up. Listen to this. Even at the expense of their character in your eyes. Well, they're just lazy. They do this all the time. But I'll do anything to give my right hemisphere and I the sense of security in the form of a logical explanation 
whether I feel secure about it or not, there's a level of knowing that puts me back in the driver's seat. And here's where we can get in trouble. And this is my favorite one. Number five, left brain, do you know where your explanation even comes from? Where do you get your information from? Like whenever you're inferring motives that you can't possibly know in other people's brain, who are the two that you, left brain, draw most of your experience data from? Left brain, you and your silent buddy, right brain. It's literally the only, this is funny. I mean, like you've got to admit, it's literally the only place that you can go for a firsthand experience of what it's like to be human and have motives. So where do you go to come up with the idea for what other people's motives are? Your very own. So you all the time infer your own motives on other people which is kind of fun if you watch people, you will always learn what their own motives are by what they think others are doing and what they complain about. So you'll hear people all the time self-confess their own shortcomings and struggles because it's what they're griping about others doing. And sometimes they've got it buried really deep and you have to kind of peel back some layers, but you'll see it. It's what they're accusing others of. So if you hear somebody say, well, they're just lazy. You know what that person has an inward soul struggle with? They're like, yeah, they feel lazy. Like if they say, well, that person, they just hate women. You, you know what? Even if it's a woman, she probably has a low opinion of women. If they say, he's lying. He didn't, he didn't ever tell the truth. You are witnessing a person self-confessing that they are liars because they think other people are like them. I have a, I have a child, one of my children, that always accuses, okay, often accuses the other kids of cheating in board games as we were playing one last night. And uh, guess who, uh, guess who, is actually the one that cheats the most. So your complaining is actually revealing to the world where you aware where you are aware that you're violating your own conscience. And so that's why this principle runs true that that which you despise in others is invariably that which you despise about yourself. If you will dig down deep in your soul, you might be blown away at how true this is about yourself. When you get irritated, you should look down inside because that's a warning sign. You do something. So do your neighbor a favor and quit accusing them because um, th this could literally change everything about uh, you and I. It has changed the way that I see the world. And while all of that can actually sound depressing, that like, oh, I'm the one that's guilty of all that, it's actually very freeing too. Because all those times that you've been accused by other people of being all of those things, you know where your accuser got the data from? Their own experience. They're not actually accusing you. They're accusing themselves of that character flaw. That's why there's this ancient Buddhist saying that goes like this. I am not who you think I am. You are who you think I am. That little tidbit there could free us from so much defensiveness. Number six, right along those lines. Number six, asking why is a bad question. Why is an unanswerably bad question whenever you are upset? Why do you ask why? We, 
we who do we ask why from and do you ever think about it like we don't even know our own motives or why we do the things we do but we will often ask like our kids or our dog like your dog destroys the living room like why did you do that can your dog really explain to you or what about whenever your five-year-old goes full up in the muddy backyard brand new shoes and pants and you're like you're like why did you do that do you really think that your kid can give you a fully exact version of why right so when we ask why we are actually coercing or tempting them or sort of like pressing them to come up with an explanation that's going to cause them to invest in a position or a narrative of their own. We are inviting them to confabulate. And remember what I said earlier, to confabulate a narrative to explain how they got where they are. So like healthy people are going to come, are going to in that situation come up with a natural go-to narrative that's going to let them off the hook. So there's a thousand different reasons culminating together why your kid went out into the mud. It, it was fun. They had energy. They were imagining swinging and not imagining cleaning up. They didn't prioritize cleanliness in the same place you did. They don't have prior experiences of trying to get mud out of shoes in the wash at 11 o'clock at night. They don't see how hard you work. So, like, which one do you want them to pick whenever you ask why? Oh, but they'll pick one because they can't explain it. It was part impulse and part short-sightedness, part ignorance, part innocence, part selfishness. And so you ask them why, and it's like, well, do you want them to get out a spreadsheet? No, they're going to make up a story. They're going to give you an answer, and it's not going to include that they're a horrible person. And maybe that's good because we have enough of the world telling them they're horrible already. But why is just a shortcut for you, and what you really mean is I'm upset. And what you really want to do in that situation is express your feelings. All you really mean is, is I need a narrative to help me reconcile your actions with this loss that I'm experiencing in the form of doing laundry or whatever it is. And so if you will express your own feelings, I feel this way, you actually will no longer need in most situations to force a woefully insufficient answer from somebody else. Number uh, number six, actually, I think that was two numbers, whatever. I think I may have eight instead of seven, but I, I numbered them wrong, whatever. Okay, this one, coexisting narratives created in accusatory environments will become narratives out of balance. So two narratives that are existing alongside of each other, so you and your boss, you and your spouse, you and your child, they will be created with a need for defense. If you are living in an accusatory environment, you will create narratives that involve you defending each other, and those two narratives will become polarized from each other. So when you accuse they will defend. They produce a narrative to explain why they were late or why they were speeding or why they said that thing and their narrative won't incriminate themselves and if they are accusing you in return or this is an accusatory environment, you're going to create your own narrative that does not include you being the bad person and you will both create parallel narratives of the same reality but they will eventually become like two repelling magnets because you need to both be innocent. Sometimes we create what's like an accusing, rebelling cycle. So like if you've ever been in a place with an accuser in charge of the boss, like what are the employees doing? 
they're probably like being lazy and trying to get back at the accuser. They're probably rebelling, and that's going to give fodder or ammunition to the accuser. This works in our spouse relationships too. If one of us is making the other one upset and we don't get why they're upset about it, then we're like, fine, I'm just going to be this way sometimes, and we rebel and we give them fodder, and those can spiral. But over time, you create two parallel narratives in your left hemispheres, you will polarize from each other and press farther and farther apart and eventually end up in what I call the Fox News CNN phenomenon. It's going to drive you to communicate less, to get more in your bubble. And Jordan Peterson brilliantly came up with this. He said, you know, the lower the bandwidth between you, the more polarizing your communication will end up. The more the the less that you talk, the less that you communicate. Whether you're talking you and another person, or whether you're talking about large groups, the lower the bandwidth connecting them to, the more polarizing their stories will become. So, do you know any couples who are living a little bit like Fox News and CNN? Like right now on their homepage, one of those websites, one of them, the headline is "Trump shocks with racist new ad," and the other, the headline goes "Nancy's house." Question mark with a picture of Nancy Pelosi imposed over the Capitol building with storm clouds brewing behind it. You can't make that up. And I know that you're desperately wondering which one came from which. Um, and you look at those two, and you know that their constituents or their readers are living in bubbles. They have developed completely different priorities because they're living out of completely different narratives for what they think matters, completely built on defensiveness in an accusatory environment. And it's so much different to the point that you look at those and you both are like, you can be talking about the same thing, but are you really even talking about the same thing at all? Like there's, there's these little bits and fragments of historical reality here that seem the same, but your narrative couldn't be more different. And here's the one thing that's crazy about it is like people who subscribe to it, who are full up living in that one narrative over the other, they are completely convinced that anyone living with the other narrative is a wacko. Not just a little crazy, but like ape crazy. <laughs> the other person and all of their friends are just totally, totally crazy. You see this in people going through a divorce, don't you? Like the other people's narratives, like you don't even know how they could possibly, like if you're right in the middle of it, you don't know how that could possibly resemble reality. And you're like, they're all a bunch of liars because they have totally misconstrued everything. And guess what they're saying about you if you're in that situation? You ever walk beside a couple that was going through something like that? And how often, if you're listening from a third party, you're like, I can't even believe you're talking about the same things. They're accusing others. And remember, if you're accusing yourself, you and your world will turn into inner turmoil and chaos and maybe even hell because you are accusing the other person and yourself at the same time and you are polarized just as much on the inside as you are on the outside i have heard so many people say things like well the elections or a certain political party getting in in charge or whatever is causing them to lose their mind which is why anybody going through the depths of any relationship chaos can feel like they're lost, like they're divided, like all these conflicting feelings separated worlds apart from the people closest to them 
and separated from their very own self. This is a bad place to be. But there's good news. Number seven. My numbers, I don't know, it's number seven, number eight, whatever. Grace changes motives. If you want somebody to change their beliefs or their drive or their motives, become the thing that draws them towards a narrative that is more compelling. Because accusing is accomplishing the opposite. Like if you go digging for explanations, the truth is that like if you need explanations that badly, you probably have a problem with a greater reality of the universe or God as you might call it. So like, you know, that that fictitious child that I began the thought experiment with that got run over, losses like that happen. And here's the truth is that some people take those losses and they grab it with their fist and they white knuckle it and they say, I'm not letting this die until my narrative finds completion with closure and we get the person and take care of the injustice. And then there are other people in the world who would have the same situation and have a completely different outcome because they open up their hands and they say, loss happens. And in the face of loss, I'm still a person who can find peace without demanding an explanation. This is an internal reality built on whether or not we believe in grace and forgiveness and whether or not we have actually owned it for ourselves, which also means owning it for others. You could dig up and try to uh, uproot and replant somebody and and go through all of their past and tell them what's wrong and what happened and you may be right they may have gone undergone some things that were bad that shaped them in negative ways and you are stuck living with it but if you go digging up at somebody else's roots then bad things are going to happen because they're going to get pretty protective of those roots. But you could also love that person and you could have your own boundaries and you can coexist peacefully. And the more you become whole, the more they will become whole. The less they'll need to go into self-protect mode and drive themselves further from you and further from the truth by confabulating a narrative just to defend themselves. So, uh, want to close with a story that happened just a few months ago. I went out for uh, a walk and I was particularly in a relaxed mood and I grabbed John and the dog and I go along and we get back and I'm ready to do some real exercising now. So I'm kind of in a hurry. I was going to just drop them off. And then John knocks a vase off of the countertop and it shatters on the floor. These were flowers that I had just gotten for Beth. And so my immediate gut reaction was like, man, I'm going out for a run. I didn't want to spend the next 20 minutes cleaning this stuff up. And so my reaction inside was, what are you doing? Why are you trying to get a glass out? And why were you up on the cabinet? And why didn't you ask dad? And you hear all of the motives questions that we go through. And so we go through this whole thing in my head. And then I just say, you know what? I'm not going there. And I say, it's okay, buddy. Let's clean it up. And then he does all of these different stages of like, he goes through, well, okay, it's fine. I'm, I'm okay. It wasn't a big deal. And I'm like, well, you know, we broke a vase and it's okay, but, but I'm going to clean it up. But you come clean it up with me. And we cleaned it up together. 
And I can guarantee you that had my normal reaction been like, it, John, this stuff always happens. Why, what were you doing up there? I would have driven him further away from the truth by forcing him to create some sort of story for why he knocked the vase off that included him being innocent. And he would think, man, dad sure is mean. I was just trying to get the vase down or just trying to get a cup down and knock the vase off. And then I would have had this story in my head. Well, he just doesn't listen well to me. He's so frustratingly stuck in his own way of doing things. And I tell him all the time, and he just doesn't ever listen. But you know what? That day, I cleaned it up with him. I said, it's okay, buddy. And I let him clean it up. And after like a full solid minute or two, as we're doing it together, he goes through all this gamut of different feelings and things. And then he says, you know, Dad, I I was telling you that I knocked it off on accident because I was afraid that you were going to spank me. And I was like, when's the last time I even spanked you? Like, you're five. I haven't spanked him in forever. And so I was like, really? Like, am I that much of a monster that I would spank you for a vase, like for an accident like that? But you know whenever your kid is lying to you and you know those times whenever they hit some deep truth. And that was some of the deepest connections that I've seen in a long time with him to his feelings. And he just told me, you know what? I was about to pretend and make up something because I was afraid you were going to come down on me and so often if we will take up the pressure and lighten the load on other people then we will allow them the space to breathe and create a narrative that is a lot more like truth because that's what we all want to live in truth is the center none of us have a patent on truth we're all swayed by our pride and we're all backing off into our own place for self-defensiveness in our own narrative we need it to win out but you know what if we'll let up on other people and we will give people grace and accuse them of being good and accuse them of meaning well and accuse them of having a good heart whatever the weather has created in their own life that narrative is going to win them over. And you may see that other people start to live in greater truth and stop being so defensive and start confessing more of what's actually going on in a balanced sort of form. And you can grow closer and closer together. You will find yourselves with two people slowly interweaving your roots together like those two trees making a living bridge. And that should be more than enough of a motive for all of us to give a little grace.